Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Theology and Reality Podcast, Special Lent 2023 Book Club Edition. This year, we're reading Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, an allegorical spiritual classic that's been read by tens of millions of people over the last half century. We're so happy to be able to bring these special episodes to you completely free. But if you like what you hear and want to support the work we're doing over at the Theology and Reality Substack, consider becoming a paid subscriber. All our work is supported by readers and listeners like you, and we hope to be doing this for many years to come. A quick warning, there are spoilers ahead, so if you want to be surprised at home, feel free to hit the pause button and come back when you've read the corresponding chapters for each episode. Now, without further ado, here we go. We'll start, and we're going to try and keep this to 30 minutes or so, as opposed to our last double episode that was um, pushing close to two hours. So we'll try and do a little bit better this time. (laughs) Um, All right. So the first thing I want to just ask, since we're almost about halfway through the book now, is what do you think of the book so far as a whole? I love it. I I think that once I got to these chapters, I was ho- like I was holding on to hope and breakthroughs to come through because you see that much afraid is just stumbling along and has all of these different um obstacles coming in her way. And so so at this point in the book I'm like okay, this this is really hitting on different trials that happen as you grow in holiness. And now I want to see how that suffering turns into something sweet. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah, I think that's a good point because I think that starts to happen in a lot of these chapters, actually, now that we're halfway through that we can talk about. But yeah, I think that I like these chapters because, I mean, I like the whole book, right? But I think that I like them for a very similar reason because I think that you start to see much afraid's growth, at least in, um, cause we're doing chapters nine through 12. And I think that you start to see her growth as these particular chapters go along. I think up to this point, there had been a lot of, she'd been really passive so far, but I think that that works really well. Cause we talked in the beginning, in the previous episodes about how much afraid's journey is very harmonious with the Catholic tradition of the spiritual life in the three stages of the spiritual life with purgation and illumination. And finally, hopefully we get to the end with union. And I think up to this point, it's been mostly purgation. And I think finally you're starting to see in these chapters, her begin to be and to feel illuminated in a certain way where she's starting to really understand some things that are different. Yes. Though in chapter nine, you really get to see her challenges again when she comes up to the mountain and has to climb up that steep cliff. Yeah. I think it's actually funny because I think even though her name is much afraid, there's part of me that thinks her, her experience in chapter nine is where she's most afraid in the book so far, Mm -hmm. or at least that's kind of the experience that seemed to me to be happening because she gets to the kind of the like impossible climb that she feels would be completely 
inevitably impossible for to for her to actually climb up and she seems completely in despair because she just doesn't seem she doesn't seem to see any way that she can climb it and so there's a sense in which to me this seems to be kind of like her almost her lowest moment she's had low moments before but here she almost finally feels like she's about to start climbing and then gets to the edge of the precipice and thinks that it's completely impossible to climb up. And obviously that, that proves not to be true, but this seems to be where she's most afraid out of any of the other chapters or any of her other experiences. Right. And she wasn't just afraid to climb up the, the high cliff, but also to even call for help which I thought was really interesting on page 109. She was, uh-huh. yeah, she was afraid to call the shepherd for help as well. I actually think that's one of the more funny, one of the more funny incidents because suffering, suffering takes the knife out and pricks her and actually causes her pain purposely. So up mm-hmm. to this point, it's all been her following along sorrow and suffering. And so it's kind of more of a passive experience, but here suffering kind of takes the wheel and does something active and actually stabs her to make her cry out. Cause she refused to do it up to mm-hmm. that point. And so I thought that was actually kind of a, one of the more, one of the more amusing moments where she actually stabs her and makes her cry yeah. out for help because she feels like, okay, well, up to this point, even though I don't like sorrow and suffering, at least they're kind of on my side. And at that point, it feels like even the companions have kind of turned against her. And so that's finally when she is forced to cry out. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. There's another, another something, something happens pretty quickly afterward where, and this is maybe one of the more interesting aspects of this particular chapter. The shepherd talks about loving to do preposterous things because this seems to be much afraid's real problem where she feels like she's so little and so unworthy of help that that's part of her despair. She feels like that there's nothing in herself that is worth helping. And so there's almost no point in asking for help. But once she's finally forced to ask for help and the shepherd shows up and she is kind of put at ease again, you know, she talks about how this is just kind of a a preposterous thing to do. And she says that it's, you know, she, she calls it that explicitly. And then the shepherd kind of laughs and just says, well, that's kind of what I love to do, right? I love doing preposterous things. And there's, um, I don't know, there's a real sense of the paradox of and for you know talking about the allegory here there's a real sense of the paradox of christian truth and love that is actually preposterous when viewed from a sort of purely human lens right there's this kind of wisdom of the world that and this the world that sees this thing, kind of thing as foolish and it's just not something that you would ever expect naturally to do and so much afraid seems to be really simply acting according to her own kind of wounded nature and part of the shepherd's healing influence on her is to show her that well on the one hand yeah it is kind of preposterous that i'm doing this with you but on the other hand this is what i do this is everything that i do yeah i think also he it it shows like how he interacts with the saints like when we look at the lives of the saints they look preposterous like they look crazy you know and like how could that be or how could this happen and 
it's like the Lord takes these lives and turns it into some heroic, amazing story that is preposterous. Like, it's like, how could this be? Right. And, and that's what he does. So we see that in real life. And I think this story just hits on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that everything about the Christian mystery is paradoxical in some sense. And I think it's helpful to remember that sometimes we can be so familiar with what it means to be a Christian or to have faith in the content of our faith. Sometimes, especially, you know, when we want to see it as something that is ultimately reasonable because it is, but there's at the same time, the flip side of the coin is that it's also, it's also just full of paradox. The other really interesting thing that I, that I really liked about this chapter is the fact that Much Afraid is chosen to climb this particular mountain in particular. So he he brings her to this particular mount. And he says, Okay, this is the this is the foot of Mount Injury, and this is the one that I've chosen for you specifically. There's other mountains that you could climb. There's Mount Reviling, there's Mount Hate, there's Mount Persecution. There's a bunch of different mountains that you could climb up to the Kingdom of Love, a bunch of different paths that I could choose for you. But this is the one that I've chosen for you specifically. And at this point in the story, you're not quite sure what it means for her to be climbing Mount Injury, right? What does that actually mean? Is it is she going to get injured? Is there, is there something else that's going to happen? But I don't know. There's something... Something kind of comforting in the idea that there are multiple, multiple different crosses you could be given, but you know the shepherd picks out, you know Christ picks one for you. It's kind of like the old story about, you know, if you 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 pull your cross into a room with everybody else's crosses and you set them down because you think this is I hate this whatever your cross is and you think oh I hate it I can't don't want to carry this anymore I wish I wish I could have been something else could have been chosen for me. And then if you were to actually, you know, have the choice of, well, I'm going to choose what you've been given or maybe some other suffering, most of the time, right, we're, we would actually be content with what's been chosen for us because there's kind of, there's a sense in which, you know, there's, there's always something more difficult on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's a kind of providential sweetness in being accepting of what's been given, I think. Yeah, I actually really loved that part that there was all different ways up. Um, <clears throat> it reminded me of the Beatitudes as well and how there are just different things that people are going to experience, but in all, there will be comfort in the end. Um so yeah, and it it just goes to show that each of us is so individual and he knows exactly what he's doing in our story to bring us to greater holiness and closer to him by our crosses and by our difficulties and trials. Yeah, the Beatitudes, that's a really good one. I hadn't thought about that explicitly, but I think that that's a really good, really good comparison. It's really good to bring up here. All right, in chapter 10, so the next chapter, so we've gone up the foot. So chapter 10, Ascent of the Precipice Injury. She manages to go up. This is a relatively short chapter, actually. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of it's kind of funny that the you know the fears have shown up again. 
we didn't really talk about that from the last chapter, but the fears have shown up again and they're kind of sitting at the bottom of the mountain watching her go up and, you know, one of them chucks a rock up at her, but it's, you know, she's too far up to, to hit at that point. But there's the most important thing that occurs here in this chapter is her discovery of the next flower, right? She discovered the first flower back when they were in the wilderness, in the desert in Egypt, and she'd found it when she'd wandered off alone. The same thing happens here, actually, right? She she wanders off alone again while they're while they're waiting in the evening. So they've stopped to rest right? and they've attempted to refresh themselves a little bit. And she goes out and she finds this flower again. And this time we get a different name for the flower, right? So she discovers this flower and it speaks to her again, again, something really interesting. The, the, the plants can speak to her. I'm not sure what to think about that, but the flower says, my name is bearing the cost, but some call me forgiveness. I'm actually not sure what the relation of the two are perfectly. So the, the first flower was a little more easily understood, I think. This one it seems a little more cryptic. Not that it's completely unintelligible, but I'm not sure how this struck you at first. I really, like, I felt like I got it. <laughs> like bearing the cost as in, you know, being sort of put in these situations where bad things happen to you or somebody treats you poorly or whatever it might be, um, and forgiving those people and bearing the cost being that experience of bearing, you know, what was dealt to you that was unfair or not just or cruel or whatever it might be, um, and forgiving anyway. So that's kind of how I saw it. So do you think it's because she's climbing this particular mountain or is it just, is it a more kind of general thing? I thought of or... it as a more general thing, okay. not connected to injury. But now that you mention it, it's interesting because maybe it is injury. Maybe it is an injury um, to the heart that she needs to forgive somebody. Okay. Yeah. I just wasn't sure. Did you, did about you, it. what was, what were your thoughts? Well, I just, I didn't, well, that's why I'm asking, because I didn't quite have too many explicitly this time. Like I said, the first flower seemed very, there's a lot that I, that I thought about, right, with that one. But this one seemed, like I said, it seemed a little more cryptic. And maybe it's just because there's not too much happening at the moment. It's just kind of like climbing and she just couldn't, you know, she's avoided, you know, she's avoided the relatives again. You know, that's kind of significant and it will be significant pretty soon again in, in chapters 11 and 12. Um, but no, I didn't, that's what I mean. I didn't, I didn't have too many thoughts, but. The only thing that I connected it to was the possibility of um, this this choice of the mountain for her that, you know, in, in this particular choice of giving her the companions that she's been given and the allowance of the relatives continue to kind of, uh, you know, follow after her and, you know, hound her all the way up the mountain. And then... Also, just sort of knowing what happens, having read 11 and 12, there's almost a sense in which I also kind of associate it with what occurs in that, in in the end of chapter 12, actually, which I'm sure we'll get to here in a minute. Yeah. Did you also have any thoughts about the cave? Because that to me was really striking. Like I immediately thought of the nativity and then also 
um, Christ's death being in a cave and significance in that regard? Hmm. I hadn't thought that. And then also not, like yeah. the blood red petals on the flower in particular. Okay. And needing to forgive the injury. Like all of that seemed connected to me to like Christ's death and, and then, you know, how that relates to the nativity scene, mm -hmm. which is traditionally in a cave. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about more, more about that. I hadn't, I think at this point I had just sort of, I hadn't been thinking quite allegorically about that yet. I was also thinking it was interesting that it was, you know, in a rock that she found this flower and there was like a little bit of water that trickled down mm -hmm. that, that fed like the seed and then it turned into a flower. And it made me think about um, like in, when the Israelites were in the desert. And okay. The, so that I did struck. think about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then water came out. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to think more about that, but that does, yeah, the imagery does make a lot of sense now that you mention it specifically. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot there. Like the, I think there's, there are a lot of deeper movements in this chapter that mm -hmm. um, go past what you might initially might just see as yeah. Just like what's right in front of you. All right. So chapter 11. So in this particular section that we're doing, right, chapters 9 through right, 9, 10, 11, and 12, I think 11 and 12, I mean, 12 especially, there's some really interesting questions that I have towards the end of that chapter. But before we get to that, let's let's do 11. So once, once we're in chapter 11, they've reached, have they reached the top of the mountain or have they reached sort of like a, just like a clearing on the mountain? I, it's, I think it's a little hard to tell. If they've actually reached the top, it of this sounded particular like mountain. they got to the top of like this particular precipice, like this particular. Right. Yeah. No, they haven't reached like the to the, right. the tippy top, but but this particular one. I and think, then it's like, mm -hmm. and then it becomes more normalized again, and they go into a forest. Right. So this is the chapter with the storm, and at this point, the shepherd is with her because she's been. You know, he he appears right at the end. So she reaches the clearing in the trees, and the shepherd kind of appears out of nowhere. At this point, he's been absent so far, and he warns her about the storms that will come, which are really interesting. And he gives a kind of foreshadowing of something that he'll talk about at the end of chapter twelve, or right at the beginning. He wants to ask her and remind her again that it's it's he's not there to deceive her. Right. He asks her that question, right? You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not like anyone else, right? I'm not a man that I should lie. Right. So he reassures her about this trust that she can, that she can have in him. In, you know, shortly after though, they stop again because they've been, she gets sort of assaulted by the, by the relatives again who show up. And he, you know, he's continually warned her, right? You're going to keep running across them. It's not like you're ever going to get completely away from them, at least not yet, right? They're going to keep appearing on the mountain. So they, they appear again. They try and push her away from the path. She's not having it, which is really interesting. Um, she's finally starting to have a little of her own agency here. And this is actually, this is the part where she, she gets so frustrated that she picks up the rock and chucks it at them. And mm -hmm. then, 
the you know sorrow and suffering her companions begin to laugh and do the same thing right they all they all pick up the rocks and sort of just start chucking them until everyone you know until everyone runs away mm-hmm. but then the storm actually does come and they finally find they finally find shelter and they're stuck in this they're stuck in this shelter in this um right in the protection from the storm in the cabin for a number of days which i think is interesting and we learn that over the course of these few days, right, she's really begun to understand the language that sorrow and suffering speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really beautiful. I, I don't have extensive thoughts on the language though. Like that to me is still a mystery. Maybe since you read the whole thing, you would have more extensive thoughts, but to me, there's something like really mysterious to it. The only thing I can think is that she's becoming, she's understanding how they're good for her. And she's understanding how God works for his glory through them and in them. And there's like, that's where like this understanding comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, no, I, I actually don't think that's, I don't think that's too far from a really good understanding. Like you said, okay, well, I don't have too many thoughts, but I actually think that's the important one. What you just, what you just said is the fact that it seems to me, it's not so much important that at least for, for the story and for the reality that we're attempting to really sort of grasp, it's, it's not as important to think about the fact of much afraid speaking to them as it is about the fact that much afraid's learning to understand fear or no not fear suffering and sorrow yeah she's starting to understand sorrow and suffering and learn that there's a kind of language that they're speaking to her she's starting to understand what they're saying and in coming to understand what they're attempting to communicate to her right she can then by proxy essentially understand what the shepherd wants to communicate to her right so if the shepherd picks these two guides out for her specifically and at first she can't understand them it'd be like you know it's you know it'd be like not understanding your teacher there's no point you can't get taught anything if you don't understand your teacher and these two guides are chosen to be her teachers and her guides but if she's finally starting to really understand what they're saying she can finally be taught something right so I think that's kind of the key. I don't think it's... So her heart is opening up. I mean, that's really what's happening. Yeah. To a greater understanding and trust in the process. Um, you know what else I think is really important here is he always forewarns her. Um, hmm. He like, he gives her like, he, he says, this is what's coming when it's a bigger thing or something to be on guard for, you know, even just reminding her of her relatives will always be around. You need, you know, keep it, which is like a reminder, like keep your guard up, but it increases that trust because he's giving her little sort of signal graces. Maybe we would call them right mm-hmm. of, you know, this is what's coming. And, and I think that to really, I think that is truly how Christ works. Mm. Like he, he really, he even did it with his apostles before he went to his death. He was like, here's what's coming. And they didn't want to hear it, but I, you know, but it was coming anyway. And he told them. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say at that point, right. 
that if at that point, right, where, where Christ warns the apostles, right, they hadn't learned to speak the language of sor- sorrow and right, suffering. Not yet. Because right? they didn't yet. want to hear it, right? It's right. like they, you know, go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, you know, it's this amazing thing. And, you know, Peter's like, maybe we should build tents and stay and hang out. Well, yeah. <laughs> and and like, why do we have to go back down the mountain? I, yeah. I uh-huh. think so much with like, when you look at the saints, like I keep recalling the saints because these are our modern day stories of like this ascent to holiness. These are our heroes, right? Of like people who are people who've run the race, you know? Um, and there's a real comfort in have, knowing that, you know, people, sinful people, (laughs) um, have, have run this race. And, um, I think what is amazing when you look at the lives of the saints, um, is that there are so many people that tell them to stop what they're doing because they know it's going to make them suffer more all the time. I mean, it's happening all the time. Like I want to go be a nun mom. Uh, no, don't do that. Get married, you know, have children. Like, don't do that. That's too far. You're going too far. Or I, I'm going to go be a priest. No, 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 you're not. You know, and, or, you know, I'm going to go, uh, run off to these lands and do missionary work. No, don't do that. You know, whatever it might be that God is asking his saints to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always pushback, even from good people, people who love them, people who want what's best for them. But it's actually like... But the interesting thing is it's always, which I think is really great that you see here, it's always like no matter what, and even if you don't realize it, right, it's always because of some kind of fear. Yes. Right? Right. Because even if even... I mean, a lot of the things that her, right, the relatives come along and say, like, they make sense for on like a natural level, mm-hmm. right? Don't do that. It'll be too hard. You're not built for it. Like... Well, she's not built that's, for it. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the whole point. That's actually true, right? Yeah, she's not. She's she's not prepared. She's not naturally capable of this. And so in like what you're talking about, in, in reality, a lot of the time when you have right, parents or friends or whoever it might be to say, you know, maybe don't do that or don't do this or how could you do that or why would you do this to yourself? Right. Things like that. It's, you know, it's some, you know, you know, often from like good intentions, right? But it's ultimately because of fear, right? You don't want someone that you care about to do something that might like get them hurt or whatever it is, or, or you're you're selfish and you don't want them to lose them or something, right? So right. no matter what it is, it's always some kind of fear. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that's why, like in. you know, when we hear God's voice and when he's speaking to us and when he's giving us these four warnings and driving us into doing something, say like, you know, putting on our hearts, like you need to do this, um, having that courage to Mm -hmm. stand our ground. So this is like an on the ground lesson, I think from this chapter of having the courage to go through the storm and to say, go away, you know, to all the voices that are saying, don't do it. It's too hard. It's too much. You're being too extreme, whatever. And just be confident in that, in God's voice and, and what he's promised in the end, despite any sorrow and suffering that are your companions, it's going to happen, you know? Um, but we do see how we do finally reach that breakthrough because that's so much of what the same, this is where like, I was like, okay, Let's see how it transforms because we know this, like in the ascent to holiness, that the sorrow and the suffering 
is transformed. Like there, there are, there's a real sweetness or else the saints wouldn't have been like, I want to suffer more, which you hear in quotes all the time. I want Mm -hmm. to suffer more. Um, Well, that's part of what makes this chapter great too. Like you, we, we learn that she, you know, she, we get access to her thoughts in her interior life in the Mm -hmm. book. And she, she realizes that along with beginning to understand this language they speak, she's also starting to take real pleasure in their company. She's starting to actually delight in being with them and being, she might not, they, they might still be kind of mysterious and a little foreboding to her in some way. Cause remember she's there, these big, tall kind of dark veiled figures. So there's still a, a sense of mystery in that sense. And, and even though she's understanding them, it's still a second language to her, but she really does start to take pleasure in their company. And part of that is, you know, you see her learn sorrow's song, yeah, where that's she where gets was... taught the song, and again, that's just part of that learning this communication and some learning what sorrow actually has to say. It's kind of interesting that you know sorrow says, "Oh, I didn't know I could sing either," and so much afraid of realizing, "Oh, like she, you know, she discovers that sorrow actually has a song to sing," is part of this realization that there's something beautiful and harmonious about the presence and communication of what sorrow can bring to a life. Yes. And the song is really beautiful. I wish I knew the melody, I think, because the melody was so Uh talked about. So, Uh yeah, Yeah. that's funny. But again, it sort of brings, you know, you had mentioned the beatitude specifically, and I think that that's a really good, a really good analog here, right? Because it's when, you know, when Christ gives the Beatitudes, it's not, um, you know, some of you may do this or sometimes maybe this will happen. It's just, uh, you know, the poor, the sorrowful, the suffering, mm-hmm. they, you, you will be them and they will exist, but right. it's going to be okay in the end. Yeah. And I think that's what this song is, is it's filled with hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what sorrow sings when united to Christ is hope. So like, that's like the flip side, you know, like that's the, um, like the closer we get, the more we understand that in sorrow, hope is manifest within us. You know, if we are growing in holiness, Mm -hmm. hope comes and, and sings her tune, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, that's kind of, to me, that seems like kind of a natural transition into the final 12th chapter because the shepherd appears in chapter 12 after much afraid starts to sing mm-hmm. and he adds his own verse, right? He tells her that I'm oh, do you mind if I sing along with you and add my own verse? And so there's something really, I think really intriguing to me about this idea that much afraid learns this song of sorrow and asks to learn it and sings it over and over again and sings it herself. And then the shepherd comes in and adds using the same melody, mm-hmm. right? Adding his own words, and so, right? The the you know the the direct explicit words of the shepherd are united and sort of brought into the song of sorrow, and so there's that uniting that you were just talking about. Yeah, that's really really cool. I didn't think of that. So they're lost in the mist here in chapter twelve. <laughs> the shepherd kind of has left them for a little bit. They're wandering around in the mist. Again, you get the 
the fearings, you get resentment and fear and self-pity, basically yeah, attempting bitterness. to persuade her that she's lost, right? Well, you know, haven't you noticed that you're not actually going up anymore? You're kind of just, you've leveled out, right? And that, I think that can be a real fear sometimes in the spiritual life where if you feel like you really can't see where you're going, if you feel kind of lost, there's a real sense in which it's true that if you're not advancing, you're falling backwards. Right. right? You can never really stay static in the spiritual life. Right. And so this is her, this is her fear, right? Cause she feels like she's just kind of going in circles, right? And that she's not actually advancing. And so if, if the fear is that you're not advancing, then the fear would generally be that you're going the wrong direction. And so she really has to kind of come to terms with, herself in this wandering and really ask herself who she wants to believe. Yeah. It's, I think it's like a really pivotal point of, am I going to trust that like, this is a part of the process because the myth signifies a lack of sight, right? So she cannot see what's going on, where she's going. Right, right, right. (laughs) In a sense. She can't see where she's going. She yeah, it does remind me of the dark night of the senses. Um, and she has to, she has to make a choice whether or not she's going to trust the shepherd that this is part of the process and that she's not falling behind. And I think like she gets to a certain point where it's like, I do trust you, but I don't trust myself. Like that's kind of what's going on, Mm -hmm. um, in that conversation. And that really, really struck me because I like, I really can relate to that. Like, okay, you know, I trust you, Lord, but I don't trust me. Like, am I deceiving myself? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like, we don't want to deceive ourselves. We want to be, you know, aware of our relatives, so to speak, of, you know, what might be deceiving us or putting us, you know, uh, in the wrong direction. And you know, there's a holy distrust of self. Like that is definitely important, right? Like we can't just rely on all our emotions and whims and, you know, how we feel about things in any given moment. Like Mm -hmm. if we rely on that, we'll just be like up and down and up and down because that's just not how this works. Yeah. But, uh, but like, I think the Lord, he, he warned her what was to come he said he he's like let her know everything and so in this point it's a it's a it's desolation so she just needs to do nothing except keep walking forward mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a really important part of the spiritual life the idea that you just continue to you continue to live the spiritual life even if there's no kind of no consolation or no real incentive to almost because there's almost there's in this sense, she's lost in the mist, right? She can't see the shepherd. She has the fearings yelling at her sorrow and suffering. Don't seem to be doing much besides just saying, this is the way. And so just keep on. And there's a sense in which just continuing to continue for her in this sense really is part of the ascent even if you can't see it. I mean, there's part of what you're saying, right? this idea that you um, you have to make sure that you're not just going with the ups and downs. I mean, it's, it's kind of a tangential point, I suppose. But I mean, this is part of the reason why the church's liturgical tradition is so important 
that it's something that's not up to you. Yeah. It's something that you enter into. Yeah. It's a greater act of worship of Christ, the priest and the church, his bride that you just enter into. That's already just a kind of participation in the heavenly liturgy that's already occurring. There's something really freeing about that. Right. I mean, there's a reason we call it, you know, sometimes I think people, you know, people can ask, well, why do we, why do we talk about going to mass on Sunday as an obligation? And I think that's a really smart word to use, not only because it's part of the law, you're obliged to do it. Right. But, but there's certain times in your life where it can be really difficult to go, or it can be difficult to have the, the feeling of joy. And so sometimes it really does feel like an obligation, but it's an obligation in the sense that you're obliged to go and to just hear mass or just go and be there. You don't have to have all of these amazing feelings to go, right? The simple act of obedience and just going and doing it and continuing on like much afraid is doing in the mist, I think can be a really powerful act of humility. I think that's exactly right. Humility and obedience. Um, and I think, I think this hits on something so deep because she could go with her emotions here because all of those relatives that came up like bitterness, resentment, all of these things are feelings that, that she's encountering in herself. And, and what we're seeing is she's overcoming her feelings and her passions. And I think this is incredibly important in the spiritual life because then when things do become desolate, we keep going forward. You know, I, I can't remember who says it. I don't know if it's St. Ignatius or maybe it's St. Francis de Sales, but it's like, actually, I think it's St. Ignatius where he says, like, if you're in a, a time of desolation, like, don't make any changes. Like yeah, I just think it is Ignatius. Yeah, keep I think going. So. Yeah. Um, like just don't make any big decisions. Don't make any changes. You just keep going along the path uh-huh. um, until you're at a steady point where you can discern and discern spirits and all that. And, you know, recognize what decisions need to be make, move, mm-hmm. made moving forward. But like when you're in that moment of, I can't see anything right now, and it's just radical trust, like a call to radical trust. Yeah. And you're not feeling all the good feelings. It's like, just keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So like, even just talking about going to mass, like it's not about feeling like I want to go to mass. It's about going to give worship to God. Like, this is what we are supposed to do, whether we feel great about it or not. And another Another thing, right? So that right occurs kind of right after, right after this occurs, right? Because she gets the idea of, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna plug up my ears first of all, so I can't hear what they're saying, and that kind of works for a while. Yeah. But then she gets the better idea to start singing to kind of drown them out. Yeah. And so there's to to me, I I couldn't tell whether I couldn't tell which because there's I think there's one way of reading it seems maybe a little superficial, and the other way I think is more profound, and it probably is a little bit of both. Where on the one hand. Part of the reason the singing works is to drown them out is because it kind of distracts her. And so there's a certain sense where sometimes you just kind of have to find a distraction if we're you know dealing with a lot of really difficult things. Because sometimes we just kind of need to take our mind off of being anxious and concerned with something. Right. On the other hand, there, I think there's a real sense in which the songs in the book are kind of a, a natural analog for 
for prayer explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so there's also a sense in which, okay, well, yeah, the, the, the distraction aspect can be kind of helpful on a natural level sometimes, but what's even more useful. And I think, which is what brings the shepherd, right. is the fact that the song is kind of like, is like prayer in this sense, almost. And I think it, it works a little bit better. I think when viewed maybe from a, you know, from like a, like an Eastern Christian perspective, right. Where the liturgy is essentially just all song right. in a different way than, you know, the, the Latin, the right. Latin right liturgical tradition is. Um, it's and just so it kind of makes me think of yeah. that a little bit, right. This is just constant, not noise, yeah, but you know, cause it's, you know, the Western, right. The, the Latin right kind of prizes, kind of sacred silence in a way that's kind of the flip side of the coin of the Eastern. Right. Right. Just con- It's just cacophony. It's just constant noise and singing and bells and everything else right, all, all the, the bells, time. Right. The There's singing. no silence yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but in, but in that rhythm, right. You can kind of find a, almost like an interior silence in, in the rhythm of that music. And I think that's part of like what's occurring here. Something I thought before we get to the last, the end of this chapter, which I'm really kind of curious about, there is something he tells her, I think is really, is important for us personally, right? She, she sings and he appears and she, you know, has, she kind of marvels at this, this fact that he appears and, and sings the song she'd been learning and gives his own words. And, um, she kind of, she, she feels really kind of ashamed at everything that she's feeling. And the shepherd reminds her, or maybe doesn't remind, maybe kind of explicitly says this for the first time, but I think he sort of hinted at it before this idea that he doesn't see her the way that she exists now, right? He sees her in the way that he will change and transform her in the end. So it's not that he kind of ignores what she is now or doesn't admit it or something like it's, you know, or like, you know, like he just kind of sees, um, you know, kind of puts a, a cloak of, of goodness and beauty over her. Like it's some kind of imputation of something that's not really hers, but it's a kind of reference to this, this final glory that she will have that he knows she's going to possess. And so that affects the way that he, he talks to her and speaks about her now, right? He says, don't, he says, I never think of you as you are now, but as you will be when I brought you to the kingdom of love. So it's this idea that he knows what he has prepared for her. And it's why it's so easy for him in the story to speak to her in such a loving way. Right. I loved that because he, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to repeat you a little bit, but he knows what she'll become and he sees the bigger picture of the transformation and that transformation gives him glory. And I think we see that in the gospels all the time of how, Christ talks about this. Like he's there for the sinners, the tax collectors, you know, he's there to transform the needy, to heal the sick, like, and, and the sinners and, and transform, transform. And that's what gives God great glory. And I think, yeah, that's just something to keep in mind is no matter where we are, we're called to be transformed. We're called to change. And I think we like something I've thought about, you know, is as I age, I never want to stop changing. I always want to be open Mm -hmm. to uh, like, I always want to, I want to grow in deeper humility and deeper wisdom. I want to learn from my children. Um, I want to always be 
changing. Um, and I think this is like really an important thing because that is what the Lord calls us to do is to, to be in this journey of transformation while we're on earth, um, to constantly be seeking holiness. And, and he sees the whole journey and he sees the end. Um, and just, we, you know, we have to be receptive to that though, like, and, and humble enough to change. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So we're running up against the clock. I want to finish real soon, but I, so there's one, what kind of one last thing I want to bring up. Um, I have a feeling that the end of this chapter may seem a little scandalous to some people. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of curious how you took this final conversation between the shepherd and much afraid. Cause he, he essentially asks her three questions mm -hmm. and it ends in a really kind of mysterious way in a way. I think to up to this point, you had, you wouldn't really expect the shepherd to say what he says. I think at least that's the way that I took it. I smiled. Okay, like so I, why? I was like, mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> like, because he's so mysterious and like interesting and you're like, <laughs> well, and it's just like following him, falling in love with Christ. Like to me, like I'm Eastern, right? So I am like the mystery, you know, like I just, you know, always, it's always about entering into the mystery, you know? Um, so for me, I thought this was humorous. Like I thought he was being humorous, um, and really testing her trust because of course he's not going to deceive her. Yeah. But he, he basically says he will though. I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the curious thing though. Cause he, it starts off right? it's three questions right? he says, okay, you went and, and he starts off almost in a way, there's a sense in which it almost reminds me of right, the, 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 the epilogue to the gospel of John, right? John chapter 21, mm -hmm. where he, he talks specifically with Peter who in a lot of ways yeah. has been much afraid I thought for this, a lot of time, yeah. right? a lot of the time, you know, and there's a sense of course, in, you know, in the gospels, right. There's something very, obviously very sort of individual and unique about Peter, right. Jesus speaks to Peter as an individual in a way that he doesn't speak to anyone else, right. Like, you know, you know, right before he's arrested or right? he, he, you know, tells Peter, I've prayed for you specifically, right. That your faith not, not fail. Mm-hmm. And of course, for a little bit, it, it seems to, right? He, he mm -hmm. said, you know, Peter and Judas essentially make the same error. You know, the difference, of course, is that, you know, Peter in humility repents and then comes back. But, you know, it's the same question, right? You know, much afraid, do, right, do, do you love me enough right, mm -hmm. to be able to trust me? It's just, yes, you, you know that I love you, right? It's the sort of same conversation. Yeah, piece, I thought the right? same you thing. Know, do yeah. you love me? Yes, I love you. So, yeah. Okay, okay, fine. That's, that's fine. That's the first question. But what if the whole world kind of told you that I was deceiving you, right? What if everything about what was happening made you feel like I was deceiving you? What would you do then? And she, you know, she kind of answers him and says, well, I know that that's not something that you would do. So I would, I would continue to trust, right? Even if everything sort of everyone told me you were and mm -hmm. everything seemed like you were, I would still trust. And then there's kind of the narrative kind of really seems to slow down and be really, really very quiet. Cause it, you know, it's the narration is explicit there. Right? He, he then asks this final question very quietly and he says, well, what if I really did deceive you? Mm -hmm. What would happen then? You know, what if, what if it actually was true? 
what if I deceived you? What, what then? And there's, and in, in on the on the face of it, I mean, it seems really kind of scandalous, almost, mm-hmm. right? Because he says, okay, well, you know, there's a big difference between asking, what if everyone told you I was deceiving you? What would you think? There's a big difference between that and saying, well, what if I did trick you? What then? And so for me, right the the story that this reminded me of was Genesis twenty two, right? Abraham and Isaac. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. because I think that that's a real. That's one of the most, in my mind, right? One of the most mysterious encounters with God mm-hmm. in Scripture. This this idea that God would ask something that by all rights we would know from the rest of revelation that god it's not something god would ask mm-hmm. right you know it's god's you know it's we've gotten you know all through this it's right he's you know as the shepherd is essentially taking on the language of of god in the old testament right i'm not man that i should lie right that's you know in mm-hmm. you know isaiah and the prophets and that's that sort of thing but here right in in the story of genesis in the story of abraham and isaac this request that God makes seems completely out of character. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's part of, that's part of the mystery of the story. You have to wrestle with what, what this could actually mean. Right. And so there's a sense in which you're kind of left with not a really great satisfying conclusion in this chapter. Cause she basically just repeats what she says before where she says, well, you know, if you can, I wouldn't stop loving you. And if you can deceive me while well, you have the right to basically like, go ahead, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop loving you. Go ahead, deceive me. Like I won't change. And then mm-hmm. she, you know, picks up another pebble and sort of like in, in tears, just kind of continues on her way and the chapter ends. I thought about it. I thought about the pain that comes with love. I thought about that. I thought about the crucifixion. So with Abraham and Isaac, he didn't kill Isaac, you know, in the end, an angel stopped him with the crucifixion scene. Christ was crucified. Christ died. Christ was the son. So, but then he's victorious, you know, and rises from the dead. Mm -hmm. So that's never like the end, but, Perhaps, I guess, I guess I was just thinking like, this is how love works is there's these mysterious elements to it that are painful, but have a, a real meaning to it. That's deeper that comes out later on. So I don't know the rest of the story. So I'm sort of waiting to see what this means. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think maybe, so maybe, maybe the best way to view this, because it's, it leaves you kind of on this cliffhanger almost Mm -hmm. where there's no real kind of conclusion, but I suppose maybe taking, taking everything you said into account, right? Maybe it's just, it kind of reminds me of what I imagine would have been the experience of the apostles on like Saturday. (laughs) <laughs> where where by all accounts right they've spent years with him and 
even though there's a lot that they didn't understand about what he said, you know, when, when he was actually with him, they had a lot of, it seemed like they had a lot of expectations, especially in the story in, in Luke, right? In the road to Emmaus, where you have the apostles kind of wandering down the road, basically in despair, you know, we thought that this was what was going on and, and I guess it wasn't. And so yeah. I can imagine kind of that sorrow and almost feeling of being deceived, right? If, if you think, okay, well, this is the one. And then obviously on Good Friday, you can imagine that there would be a real feeling of, well, I guess we were wrong. And that's sort of the glory of Sunday, right? That's the glory of Easter Sunday. I always think it happened on Saturday because I think Good Friday, there was so much like power happening at his death and like so many things like with the temple, with the like curtain being ripped open. And there was definitely some sort of earthquake slash darkness. Like it seemed like there was a lot like going on that if you were spiritually inclined or just like knew Christ at that point, then you would know something big was happening. And there were even conversions of like people, like, wasn't there like a guard that like converted him? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I guess I don't have the Bible in front of me right now, but anyway, you're the scripture scholar. This is what well, you talk. Well, that's, okay. what, that's, well, that's what I'm saying. Cause I, I, I think that I think part, part of, part of the, part of the glory of Easter Sunday is that, that, you know, Friday evening and Saturday, for the most part, right, they would, I mean, think of who's actually there at the cross. Right. It's only, it's only a handful. Right. Right. That's it's, totally true. Most of them have abandoned him. They, and that's, they're gone. That's a really good point. Judas even kills himself. Yes. All of, yes, all of that is a really good point. But what, what I'm saying is the people who are there, I imagine like Saturday was harder because it was like, now what? You know what I mean? Like, well, that's that's what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. in in the wake of everything that happens Friday afternoon and evening, and then Saturday. Yeah, Just emptiness, that's, that's what complete I mean. Complete empty. Yeah, exactly. No, that's yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so there's, but what but what we're getting in the book is like, okay, well, what if what if it seems you know it's not just everyone else is telling you that I'm deceiving you. Like, what if I did deceive you in the sense of like, what if it really seemed like I did? Mm-hmm. Right. And and then there's a sense in which Abraham may, I think, f- probably had to go through those feelings of you promised me this son. How could you you how could you do this to me now? Right. Mm-hmm. You promised me. This seems like you've deceived me. Right. And the apostles too, right? Everything that we you've been taught and that you told us and everything else, but and now you've been crucified. Like how could this happen? Right. And so in this same this similar sense, right? Much afraid gives the answer that I think we would all hope to give where it would be, well, I would still have faith. Yeah. I would still love. It wouldn't change that. Right. And she picks up her pebble and walks away. Yeah. And I guess we'll have to wait till next time to figure out what happens next. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> all right. Anything else? No, nope, that's all. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. All right. All right. That's the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Until next time.